Exodus chapter 2. This is what Holy Scripture says. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the ch girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her, her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Paul has uh, told me that you've been in the book of Kings. He told me that you uh, just did, uh, not Kings, sorry, Judges 19, that very dark passage. He said they, that uh, he's been beating you up a little bit. So he said, if you have an encouraging sermon, uh, give me one. And I was thinking about the darkness of the time of, that the judges judged, and I thought, we all have those dark times, don't we? Almost all of us have faced moments in our lives when tragedy or evil just comes upon us. My wife Sue and I are not immune to that. For years, we struggled with infertility, not knowing why we could not conceive, going through test after test, month after month. No pregnancy, no babies. It was heartbreaking. And it felt, to be honest, that God had grown silent. I remember one time, after comforting my wife who was in tears, going off by myself and really ranting at God, shouting into the void, as only a pastor can. I left nothing back. And I heard nothing back. The silence to me was deafening. And all that came to my mind in that moment were the silly lyrics of an old song, a song most of you probably have never heard by a man named Don McLean called American Pie, who having heard that one of his music heroes had died tragically, wrote these words. And the three men I admire most, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, they caught the last train for the coast. The day, the music died. It felt to me on that day that they had caught the last train for the coast. And the music in me was dying. When you face those times, the silence of God can be deafening. The silence of God can be confusing. It can be infuriating. It can be discouraging. It can be crushing. 
But I'm here to tell you that the kingdom of God is always advancing. The kingdom of God is never stopping. The power of God is always working. The love of God is always present because that silence is not the absence of God. It is a sovereign silence where God is working out his powerful purposes in the world. So when you face the storms of life, the afflictions of this world, the hostility of this culture, and the tragedy of the curse, remember, trust in the sovereign silence of God, trust in the power and purpose of God, and respond in faith. We're going to look at this passage through two lenses. The first is the sovereign silence. The second is the sovereign power of God. The sovereign silence is picked up in the first couple of verses here. This man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. She conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. This is Moses' mother. Chokabed. When she could hide him no longer, she took him for him a basket made of bulrushes, adopted it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it, placed it among the reeds by the river bank, and a sister stood at a distance to know what could be done to him. We are here locating ourselves near the beginning of the book of Exodus in a time of deep darkness for the people of God. It is a great story of redemption, this book, of God's faithfulness to his people and his deliverance. It's great to us because we read the whole thing and we know the ending. But they didn't. They found themselves in the middle of the story where nothing was guaranteed and they didn't know what God was or was going to do. And when you're in the middle of the story and nothing is guaranteed, it is so much harder. These Jewish people are facing annihilation and genocide. They are stunned. God had literally appeared to them through their patriarch Abraham. He'd promised Abraham a nation, a kingdom. He'd promised their own land. And yet here now in Egypt where they fled from famine, Joseph has died. There's a new Egyptian pharaoh. He finds the Israelites no longer favored guests but dangerous rivals, so he puts them into slavery, and then he announces an edict of genocide. Every firstborn male Jewish child is now to be drowned in the Nile River. So where is God here? God is not mentioned in this passage, you may note. God, it seems, has gone silent, and evil is howling in triumph. But let us dig down deeper into this story. Because this silent God is the God that told his people to go to Egypt in Genesis 46.3, where he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Did you hear that verse? Because in that verse is the key to understanding what's about to happen here. We see both the problem of the silence of God and the solution. The problem is clear. God promised to bring them into the land of Egypt and prosper them. The solution, though, is here if you have eyes to see it. Hear these words again. I will also bring you up out again. You see, here, 
The seeming silence of God is not the absence of God. It's the sovereign working of God. Even though he feels as if he's not present, he is deeply present. Because in the middle of the sovereign ordering of history towards his glory and his deliverance, there are times when we play a particular role which includes suffering, affliction, the curse, and tragedy. Let us remember, however, that God had given the people of Israel two things to trust in and to cling to when they went through those valleys. And they are these, his acts in history and his promises in his word. His acts in history. They were to remember that God had given Abraham a miraculous child as an heir, Isaac, just when Sarah was past the age of giving birth. He had miraculously preserved the Jews through the rise of Joseph, the imprisonment of Joseph in Egypt, the evil that Joseph's brothers had done to him, and then the rise of Joseph to the right hand of Pharaoh and the bringing of the people of God into Egypt and favor and flourishing. His acts in history had shown his faithfulness to his promise, which was their second anchor. His promises, I will be with you in Egypt, and I will bring you out again. And men and women, boys and girls, these two things. God's acts in history and God's promises to his people. These two things are meant to be two anchors for us in the storms of life and in the seeming silence of God. Scholars are intrigued, delighted, actually mystified by Moses' mother's actions here because in response to an edict that her son is to be drowned in the Nile, she first hides her son for three months, that they get and we get, defies the government. Then in a twist of narrative irony that sounds like fiction, she brings her child to the Nile that she's been protecting. She brings him to the place where he's supposed to be drowned. And then she constructs a little vessel for him to float in. The Hebrew word for that vessel, by the way, teva, take note. It is used one more time in Scripture for the ark of Noah. And a sister is sitting there watching what's going on. What's going on here? These two, Miriam and Jochebed, are acting in faith. They know God has promised to make Israel a great nation and a world-blessing kingdom. And so they see the present circumstances through the eye of faith, looking at the past acts of the grace of God and the present promises of God, and they respond, particularly the mother, in faith, saying, I'm going to put my son out there into the very Nile where he's supposed to be drowned in the hope that somehow deliverance will come from the place that's supposed to be the place of destruction and death. The Nile was not only known as the place to drown Jewish firstborn males, but it was the place where Egyptians went to bathe and to play and for people to be seen. So she sets him out on a teva, hoping that some Egyptian will have compassion on this little Jewish boy knowing that their pharaoh had said that little Jewish boy is to be drowned. To be rescued from death 
by the mercy of someone who has no reason to show mercy, she sets Moses out on the Tavah, men and women. This is the very picture of faith. Actually, this is a picture of the gospel. Think about this for a moment. An edict of judgment hung over Moses as an edict of judgment hangs over you and me, except in our story, that edict is just. God justly hangs the edict of judgment over our heads because we are morally corrupt. We are sinful, we are selfish, and we are cruel. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have gone each one of us to our own way. Isaiah 53, verse 6. For the wages of sin is death. Romans 6, 23. The edict is just. It hangs over us. We have sinned. But God, who loves us with an infinite love, is someone who can be our protection. The waters of God's judgment may wash over the world, but if we go to the ark, we will be saved. And God sent his beloved son Jesus into human form to take upon himself not only our nature, but to take upon himself the moral debt for our sin. And Jesus did that and became the Teva of God, the ark in which we can take refuge. He bore God's judgment on our sins and paid for it on the cross. So when we trust in the goodness of God who deserves to judge us and just put ourselves out there with nothing but faith, and present ourselves as vessels who simply need mercy like Jochebed did for Moses, then the gospel says that mercy, the very mercy of the one who has an edict of judgment against us, will arise for us. If you're here and you are not yet a Christian, you will not get God's judgment if you take refuge in Jesus. Christ's blood will be for you a covering it will be for you a satisfactory payment of the debt of your sin. Come to Jesus, trusting in him, not in anything that you have done to deserve anything, but casting yourself upon the mercy of God, like Moses' mother did with Moses. And if you're here and you're already a Christian, take these two precious guardrails and use them to help navigate the dark, afflicting valleys of life. Has God acted in history for you? He has only sent his only beloved son for you, to rescue you, to live the life you could not live, to die the death you did deserve, that you may gain the life that he deserved and wants to share with you. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Has God acted in history for you? Yes, he has. Has God given you his precious promises to be with us in times of tragedy, suffering, affliction, and evil? Yes. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew 28, verse 20. Isaiah 43, verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you will not be burned. The flame shall not consume you. Romans 8, 35 and onward, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or danger, or sword? For I am sure that neither death nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, not anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God will be with us and he will bring us out. John 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you will be also. The three men I admired most had gone nowhere. And I had to talk to myself in the darkness of my anger and sense of desolation. I said, God, I trust that you are good because Jesus has come to pour your love out to me and died for me. I trust that you love me and I trust you will meet us in our sadness. And he did. It didn't take the sadness away. It doesn't. Christian, if you are here, you need to realize that you live a triply afflicted life. You have the general brokenness of this world that crashes down upon you like it crashes down upon everybody else. Secondly, you have the hostility of a culture that does not want to submit itself to the God of the universe bearing down upon you. Thirdly, you are squarely in the middle of the target zone of spiritual warfare brought on by the enemy and his minions. You are triply afflicted. This life is not some grand life of comfort to be expected. This life will have its afflictions and its sufferings, but God will be with you and he will deliver you. Take faith. Secondly, the sovereign silence of God is not an absence of God. It is the sovereign power of God. In verse 5, we pick it up and we see the beginning of the turning of the tide. No, Gandalf is not in the Bible. But God is, though his name is not mentioned. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. What a coincidence. While her young woman walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him. What a coincidence. And said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to the Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse for the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman, who was his mother, took the child and nursed her son. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. Here is the beginning of a historic reversal of fortunes for the Jewish people and the beginning of the deliverance. And now we see another woman, the daughter of Pharaoh, just happens to be there, happens to want to bathe in the river, happens to see this Hebrew child, and happens to have pity on them. There are so many happens here. It is pregnant 
these verses with the presence and the power of God. What daughter of an absolute ruler would willingly disobey her father and have compassion on the son of a Hebrew woman when an edict from her father said they must all be drowned? Only a crazy woman. Only a woman who is filled with a supernatural calling that overrides her natural inclinations. It makes no sense of all the people in the world to rescue this baby. The daughter of the king is the least likely. Vegas would put no odds on that. What do we say? We say this is a miracle. This is the unleashing of the sovereign power of God in what looks like a simple, ordinary narrative. The Nile River, the place where so many children have been tragically murdered, now becomes the place where the human savior of the people of Israel is himself saved. Not only saved, brought into the household of the royal family and raised into royalty. It's crazy. This narrative has so many ironies, so many reversals, so much symbolism, we can barely keep them in our head. Think about it. A doomed child, doomed to the Nile, arises out of the Nile from death to life. It's a kind of resurrection. The doomed child arises out of Teva, an ark, where the waters of judgment on the Jewish people is supposed to happen, but they're protected and delivered. Moses is given by the daughter of the king to be the daughter, to be the son of his mother. His mother gets to breastfeed and rear her own child and probably got paid to do it. This, the reversals here are crazy. Moses the child moves from being an abandoned target of judgment into the loving arms of his mother and the protective enclave of the royal family. I'm sorry. There's no Netflix series that would write that. There's no K-drama that would write that. This is one of the most underappreciated miracles in the Bible because this indeed has no natural explanation. What do we take from this? When God seems silent, First implication, he is sovereignly working to save his people, build his kingdom, proclaim his glory, and fulfill his purposes. God was raising up in Moses, as we shall see, a, <clears throat> as you know, a deliverer. Moses would leave Pharaoh's house and be counted with the people of God, the hated enslaved Jewish people. God would use Moses later on to call for their freedom to help send the plagues for their freedom, and then to lead them into freedom and out of slavery. Moses would be, humanly speaking, their deliverer. But God would do much more than that because Moses was not just a political deliverer. He became, as you know from the story of Exodus, a mediator between God and the Jewish people, mediating God's law to them, God's grace to them, God's covenant with them, what we call in Christian circles the old covenant, men and women, slaves, need a deliverer. Sinners need a mediator. And God raised one up from the waters of judgment in the Nile, a little baby in a miniature tava. Implications for us to understand about the power of God. Firstly, the God's power is regularly in Scripture revealed against the backdrop of evil and affliction for God's people. 
It was so here in the appearing and miraculous deliverance of Moses. It would be so later in the appearing and ministry of the final Moses, Jesus. It is part of the pattern of Scripture that when things are really dark, God's deliverance is nigh. So be patient. Secondly, God's power is displayed through apparent weakness that he alone may get the glory. The women, the midwives in chapter 1, Hebrew midwives, not their name, the Pharaoh's not named, I think that's hilarious. The Pharaoh's daughter's not named, but the midwives are named. These weak women. And now here, Miriam and Jochebed, these weak, endangered women are the vehicles for the power of God's miraculous deliverance to be unleashed. A little basket becomes a tava, an ark of salvation. Like Gideon, God loves to use people with little power to display the greatness of his power that we may acknowledge the greatness of his glory. Thirdly, God's power is regularly expressed in the reversal of evil. What Pharaoh meant for destruction for the Jewish people turned out to be the deliverance. Pharaoh had no idea that his edict would end up having his chief adversary, prophet and deliverer of people from the Pharaoh, born into and adopted into his family. I mean, I'm sorry. This is the reversal of evil. Fourthly, God's power is always expressed with a particular purpose. To point to the story and then to the glory of his son Jesus. The story of Moses is, of course, a foreshadowing. A foreshadowing of a greater miracle story. Because a few thousand years later, another child would be born in the darkness of a genocidal edict against Jewish male children. And that child, Jesus was brought in, was born and brought into a time when Israel was groaning under the weight of colonization and oppression from a different empire, that of Rome. People were groaning then as they are groaning here. And that child was born in a time when Israel had been disciplined by God for their spiritual adultery and were in desperate need for God's forgiveness and a mediator. They had proven to the world, ladies and gentlemen, that even the most religious people with the most contact, direct contact with God could still be deeply sinful and selfish, greedy and exploitive, unjust and cruel. Hearts deeply darkened and polluted by selfishness and evil, cruelty and envy, all of which the Bible calls sin. They, the Jewish people, were slaves to their sin. The Romans who were above them were slaves to their sin. They were all sinners in the face of a holy God. They were all slaves to something far deeper than a political power. They were slaves to the corruption in their own hearts. They were slaves to their own evil desires. Slaves need a deliverer. Sinners need a mediator, and at the proper time, God sent forth one born under the law, Jesus Christ, the final Moses, and he was the deliverer that Moses points to, the mediator that Moses himself longed for, and instead of being brought into a royal family, this child left the royal throne room of heaven and came down 
into an impoverished, simple family. Born the son of a carpenter in a tiny town and village. Forced to be hidden from a genocidal edict, a demonic attempt to stop God from bringing deliverance to slaves and grace and forgiveness to you and to me. And this child, Jesus, proclaimed that he'd come for everyone who's a slave, for we are all slaves to sin. Jesus said, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Have you ever committed a sin? Then a slave you are. And Jesus came for you. All of us sin. All of us do so because we were born in slavery to it and we cannot help but be selfish and sinful. We need that power broken. We need that slavery freed. Jesus came to be that deliverer. And he came to be for us the ark that covers us from all the judgment that our sin attracts from a holy God. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Moses would grow up to give people God's law as their mediator. God's law, however, also became God's mirror for each and every one of us to look at and to see our brokenness, our sinfulness, and our need of, the, of, a, of a final mediator. Moses' role as mediator was to point us to the ultimate mediator, Jesus. Final applications or implications. If you are here and you are suffering, and you are hearing the seeming silence of God, remember it is a sovereign silence. God is here with you if you are a Christian, waiting for you to turn to him. Turn to him. He's given you his son in history. He has given you his promises in his word. Trust those two guardrails as you walk with him through the valleys of the shadow of death and affliction. Secondly, understand that God's sovereign power always points to two things, bringing freedom to those who are enslaved, bringing grace to those who are sinners. Freedom has a name. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you for your goodness and your grace. May we who experience much of the darkness of this world, both in our hearts and in our lives and in the news and in our homes, may you give us the faith to trust in you because Christ has died and risen for us and you've given us the great and precious promises of your word. Let us move ahead with faith through these dark days while we wait for you to come again and give us full and final deliverance. Amen.